Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Joshua Ferris, Lori Herzl, and Dina Mengestu. You will now hear Vice President of AWP's Board of Trustees, Oliver De La Paz, provide introductions. Hello and welcome. I'm Oliver De La Paz, Vice President of AWP's Board of Trustees. Thank you. Before we start today's presentations, I need to ask you to please turn off your cell phones and remember no flash photography allowed during the presentation. Please allow 15 minutes after the discussion to allow the writers to go to the book table for their signing after the event. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce the moderator of tonight's featured presentation, Lori Herzl, Senior Book Editor at the Minneapolis Star Tribune. Lori Herzl. Good evening, and thank you for sticking around. It's been a long three days, but a fun three days. So thank you all for being here. It might seem that writers Dina Mangetsu and Joshua Ferris are not terribly similar. One writes about Ethiopians in exile in America, about the African diaspora, about the lasting effects of displacement and war. And one writes about modern upper-class American men in New York City, professionals who seem to have it all but who are facing a profound existential angst. But if you take a closer look, some commonalities emerge. Both writers are exploring the question of where in the world their characters belong, about fitting in and finding some sort of home. Both have been highly honored, often with the same awards. One was a National Book Award finalist. The other was named one of the National Book Foundation's 30 Under 35. One won the Dylan Thomas Award. The other was a finalist in a different year. Both writers were honored by the New Yorker magazine with their 20 Under 40 Award in 2010. And it must be said, both writers have really great hair. (laughs) Joshua Ferris grew up in Florida and Chicago and now lives in New York. He graduated from the University of Iowa, where he had initially intended to study engineering, and later earned an MFA in writing from UC Irvine. He's the author of three novels. His first was Then We Came to the End, a darkly comic novel told in seamless first-person plural about office workers in an advertising agency at the end of the boom. His second novel, The Unnamed, is a strange and haunting book about a successful attorney who is afflicted with a condition that compels him to walk without stopping. And his new novel, To Rise Again at a Decent Hour, is a story of a dentist in an existential crisis whose internet presence is taken over by people who are part of a strange, very old, almost secret culture. Ferris has won the Penn Hemingway Award, a Barnes & Noble Discover Award, and was a National Book Award finalist. His new novel was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Dylan Thomas Award. Dino Mangetsu was born in Ethiopia and came to the United States with his parents at the age of two. He grew up in Peoria, Illinois, and graduated from Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. He holds an MFA from Columbia University. He's both a journalist and a novelist, 
and has reported on Joseph Kony in Congo and on the violence in Darfur for Rolling Stone. He's the author of three novels, books that shine a light on the lives of Africans who have fled the violence and chaos in their home countries for a new life in America. His first novel, The Beautiful Things That Heaven Bears, is about an African man who runs a small grocery store in a DC neighborhood that is beginning to become gentrified. How to Read the Air, his second novel, is about a young man trying to understand and come to terms with his immigrant parents and their violent relationship. His new novel, All Our Names, follows two tracks that alternate between revolution in Uganda in the early 1970s and life a few years later in the American Midwest. That story is told by two narrators, a young man eventually known as Isaac and a woman, a social worker in the United States who falls in love with him. Mengetsu's work has been published in The New Yorker, Granta, Harper's, The Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. He's won the New York Times Notable Book Award, was selected by the National Book Foundation as one of their five under 35, I think I said 30 under 35 earlier, I apologize, has won the Guardian First Book Award and the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, and he was shortlisted for the Dylan Thomas Award. In 2012, he received a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. We'll begin with each of them reading from their new book for a bit, so we'll start with Joshua Ferris. Can you hear me and back? (laughs) If you look back, you'll see quite a lot of (laughs) empty chairs. There's a competing poetry reading right now, but I think the thing we're probably really competing with is the bar. So it's nice of you all to be here. I'm really honored to share the stage with you now. And uh, you're probably all talked out and listened out, but you're here and I'm very grateful. So I'm going to read for about 20 minutes from To Rise Again at a Decent Hour. It's about a dentist. I was talking to a dentist friend recently and she said that she was going to rename my book To Bill Again at a Decent Rate. Please encourage the person to your right and the person to your left to laugh. That will help me. Betsy Convoy was my head hygienist and a devout Roman Catholic. If ever I was tempted to become a Christian, which I never was, but if I was, I thought I would do well to become a Roman Catholic like Mrs. Convoy. She attended Mass at St. Joan of Arc Church in Jackson Heights, where she expressed her faith with hand gestures, genuflections, recitations, liturgies, donations, confessions, lit candles, saints' days, and several different call and responses. Catholics speak like baseball players in the coded language of gesture. Sure, the Roman Catholic Church is an abomination to man and a disgrace to God, but it comes with a highly structured mass, several sacred pilgrimages, the oldest songs, the most impressive architecture, and a whole bunch of things to do whenever you enter the church. Taken all together, they make you one with your brother. Say I would come in from outside and go straight to the sink to wash my hands. It didn't matter which sink, Mrs. Convoy would find me. She'd sniff at me like a bloodhound, and then she'd say, what exactly have you been doing? I'd tell her, and she'd say, why do you feel the need to lie to me? I'd tell her, 
And she'd say, scrutiny does not kill people. Smoking kills people. What kind of example do you think you're setting for your patients by sneaking off to smoke cigarettes? I'd tell her. She'd say, they do not need a reminder of the futility of it all from their dental professional. When did you take up smoking again? I'd tell her. She'd say, oh, for heaven's sakes, then why did you tell everyone you'd quit? I'd tell her. She'd say, I do not see how the occasional show of concern is utterly strangulating. I would like to see you live up to your potential, that is all. Don't you wish you had more self-control? I'd tell her. She'd say, of course I will not join you. What are you doing? Do not light that cigarette. (laughs) I'd put the cigarettes away with an offhand remark. She'd say, how am I a trial? I am not the trial here. The trial is between you and your addictions. Do you want to ruin your lungs and die a young man? I'd tell her. She'd say, you are not already in hell. Shall I tell you what hell will be like? I'd answer. She'd say, yes, as a matter of fact, any conversation can turn into a discussion on the salvation of the soul. It's a pity more don't. What are you doing at that window? I'd tell her. She'd say, we are on the ground floor. You would hardly manage to sprain an ankle. I'd come out of the bathroom, and she'd be standing right there. I've been looking all over for you, she'd say. Where have you been? I'd tell her the obvious. She'd say, why must you call it the thunderbox? I'd tell her, adding a few details, and she'd grow severe. She'd say, please do not refer to what you do in the bathroom as making the Pope's fountain. I know the Pope is just a joke to you. I know the Catholic Church is nothing but a wedding stone for your wit but I happen to hold the church in the highest regard. And though you can't understand that, if you had any respect for me, you would mind what you say about the Pope. I'd answer with an apology, but she'd ignore me. Sometimes I honestly wonder whether you care about anyone's feelings other than your own. And she'd walk away. I'd never learn why she was standing outside the thunderbox unless it was to bring grief to the both of us. Later, after letting it fester, she'd say, well, tell me. Do you care about anyone else's feelings? Do you have any respect for me at all? Of course I had respect for her. Let's say the day's scheduling worked out as planned and we we had five cleanings to perform all at once. To minimize wait times and to maximize my turnaround, I would normally require three, if not four, dedicated hygienists. But I had Betsy Convoy. Betsy Convoy, with the help of one or two rotating temps, could manage all five chairs. She could x-ray, chart, scale, and polish, tutor each patient in preventive measures, leave detailed notes for my follow-up exams, and still manage to supervise the staff and oversee the scheduling. Most dentists won't believe that, but then most dentists have never had a truly great hygienist like Mrs. Convoy. Well, she'd say, why aren't you answering me? But most days, I would have cheerfully stood by and watched her die. Better her dead, I thought, than being around. I would never have found anyone to replace her. But Betsy Convoy being around, there was the true Calvary. Poor Betsy. She was responsible for our efficiency, our professionalism, and a good portion of our monthly billing. Her internalization of Catholicism and its institutional disappointments suited a dental office perfectly, where guilt was often our last resort for motivating the masses. (laughs) Handing out a toothbrush to a charity patient, she'd tell that person, be faithful in small things. 
Who does that? But then out of nowhere, I'd imagine her getting fucked doggy style by a muscular African on one of the dental chairs. Of course I respect you, Betsy. We couldn't go on without you. Later, at the bar, I'd be the last one to leave. She'd be second to last. She'd say, don't you think you've had enough? I'd tell her. She'd say, how are you going to get home? I'd tell her. She'd say, Connie's gone, dear. She left two hours ago. Come on, let's get you home. She'd put me in a cab. She'd say, can you handle it from here? I'd tell her. She'd say, to the cabbie, she'd say, he lives in Brooklyn, and then I don't know what. We'd take a one-off trip somewhere far-flung. I'd fight and fight and say, no fucking way, but somehow she'd get me on that plane. We once flew from JFK to New Delhi, and from New Delhi to Bijou Patniak, and from there I took a train 50 kilometers inland, where we walked through the cesspool streets in sweltering heat as limbless beggars crutched behind us, issuing soft exhortations. The clinic was little more than two armchairs under a luncheon umbrella. We were stationed right next to the cleft palate folks. It was enough just to see them at work. I'd say to her, I can't believe I let you drag me to this goddamn country. She'd tell me not to take the Lord's name in vain. I'd say, might not be the best time to demand a show of respect for the Lord. How much respect did the good Lord show these kids? Pulp necrosis, tongue lesions, goiter-like presentations on account of the abscesses. I could go on. I will go on. Stained teeth, fractured teeth, necrotic teeth, gingival discharge, open sores, dry sockets, trench mouth, and the malnutrition that follows from the impossibility of eating. A sane person doesn't stick around in the hopes of making a dent. A sane person takes the next plane home. I stayed for tax reasons. That's it. A solid write-off. And I liked the roasted lamb. You can't find lamb that good even in Manhattan. Mrs. Convoy said that we were there to do God's work. I'm here for the lamb, I told her. As for God's work, I said, seems like we're undoing it. She disagreed. This was the reason that we had been put on earth. Pessimism, skepticism, complaint, and outrage, I said to her. That's why we were put on earth. Unless you were born out here, then it was, it's pretty clear that your only purpose was to suffer. A finished biography appealed to Mrs. Convoy more than a work in progress. All of the important men in her life were dead. Christ the Savior, Pope John Paul II, and Dr. Bertram Convoy, also a dentist before his fatal stroke. Betsy was only 60, but had been widowed 19 years. I always considered her alone, if not chronically lonely. But she was never alone. She was in the tripartite company of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, as well as the irreproachable presence of the Virgin Mother. In fellowship with saints and martyrs, one in spirit with the Pope in Rome, deferential to her bishop, confessional to her priest, and friend and comfort to all fellow members of her parish. If the Catholic Church had come under assault for its many sins, inside the Church, the bonds had never been stronger, and Betsy Convoy needed no one's sympathy for widowhood, solitude, or the appearances of a barren life. I was convinced that she would never die. But if she did, and though her funeral amount to a very modest affair, she was bound for happy reunions in a better world, in the brotherhood of a loving multitude, while her tombstone was still fresh with wreaths of everlastings. 
she'd order a book. It was called Stop the Scheduling Madness or The Way of the Zero Balance Office or The Million Dollar Dentist. This last was written by someone named Barry Hallow. He was not even a dentist. He was a consultant. He sits in Phoenix, Arizona and writes a book. His proven methods can change your practice, your financial health, and even your life expectancy. Most of all, he writes, he can help you achieve happiness. Hey, who doesn't want that? Anything less than complete happiness is for complete losers, really depressed people, old people losing their eyesight, and child actors who turn out to be weird looking. It wasn't going to happen here, not with Barry Hallow. We schedule inefficiently, treat insufficiently, and bill ineffectively, Mrs. Convoy concluded after reading Barry Hallow. I took exception to the claim that we somehow treated insufficiently. We do not spend enough time, she countered, instructing patients on preventative measures, which in the long run would make them healthier. Preventative measures don't pay the bills, I said. We're running a practice here, not a master class. And besides, I said, we do in fact spend a hell of a lot of time on preventative measures relative to other practices. But remember who you're talking about here, Betsy. Human beings, lazy, short-sighted knockbacks who you try rousing the brush after four glasses of Merlot on a Wednesday night. Ain't going to happen, no matter how much we preach preventative measures every time they deign to remember an appointment and drag themselves in here like children sent to pick up their toys. Just ain't going to happen. You have a low opinion of humanity, she'd say. And ignoring her, I'd say, and it's not like we're asking much. The hands take care of themselves. The feet more or less take care of themselves. The nostrils require a little attention from time to time, as does the sphincter. That's about it. A little oral upkeep ain't a lot to ask in exchange for the good times. The bonobos spend their days picking themselves free of ticks and lice. They could be the bonobos. Oh, for heaven's sakes, you've gone off the rails again. Just listen to me for one second, will you? Barry Hallow's methods are proven, and if you just follow the 12 steps he lays out, then he guarantees, I have it written down here somewhere, take the time, the teeth will shine, and the patient will sign on the dotted line. That's some swell little posy, I said. That clown's not even a dentist. I would like permission to put some of his methods into practice, she said. Will it require any more work from any of us? It's likely to require a little more work from some of us, yes. Are any of them me? (laughs) It's likely, she said. No chance, I said. I kept a deliberately low profile online. No website, no Facebook page. But I'd Google myself. And what came up every time were the same three reviews. The one I wrote, the one I nagged Connie into writing, and the one Anonymous wrote. Don't think I didn't know who Anonymous was. I'd given the guy every opportunity to pay me. He was into me for eight grand. I did the work. I made it possible. Listen, I made it possible for this jerk to resume eating. I was owed costs at the very least. So what does he do? He gets on a payment schedule of 20 bucks a month and then promptly broadcasts his resentment that someone demand he act honorably by posting a review calling my work shoddy and overpriced. And on top of that, he says, I have cave dwellers. I don't have cave dwellers. I make it a point to inspect my nostrils in the mirror before I go and hover over a patient. It's common courtesy. But now the world thinks that I have cave dwellers. If somebody's doing a little research on the internet for a new dentist, and are they likely to choose the guy who might gouge them for lousy work 
while showering them with his cave dwellers? No, but there is no countering, no appeal, no entity to whom I can plead my case to have the post removed. So I'd Google myself every month or so, and when the review from Anonymous came up, as it did without fail every time, I'd curse out loud and feel the victim of an injustice, and Mrs. Convoy would say, stop Googling yourself. (laughs) She'd say, what do you have against other people? And I'd say, I'd be sitting at the front desk in one of the in one of the swivel chairs at the front desk doing paperwork or something, and I'd look up from the paperwork and I'd say, what do I have against other people? I have nothing against other people. And she'd say, you alienate yourself from society. And I'd say, I'd turn physically in the chair to look at her and I'd say, who alienates himself from society? You don't have a website, she'd say, and you refuse to create a Facebook page. You have no online presence. Barry Hallow says, And for this, I'm being accused of alienating myself from society because I don't have a Facebook page? All I'm trying to say is, Barry Hallow encourages everyone to have an online presence. An online presence guarantees more business. It's proven. That's all I'm trying to say. No, that's not all you're trying to say, Betsy, I'd say. That's not at all all you're trying to say. If it was, you wouldn't have accused me of alienating myself from society. You have misunderstood my intentions, she'd say. I think you have willfully misunderstood me. I don't have anything against other people, Betsy. Do I understand other people? No. Most people I don't understand. What they do mystifies me. They're out there right now, playing in the fields, boating, whatever. Good for them. You know what, Betsy? I'd love to boat with them. Yeah, let's boat. Let's eat shrimp together. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, she'd say. How did we start talking about eating shrimp? I'll never forgive myself for bringing this up. No, don't walk away, Betsy. Let's hash this out. Do you think I can just willy-nilly, without a care in the world, go out there and go boating? Who said anything about going boating, she'd say. Think I can just toss everything aside and go tanning and rock climbing and pick apples and shop for rugs and order salad and put my change in the same place night after night and wash the sheets and listen to you two and drink Chablis? What on earth are you talking about, she'd say. I was only trying to convince you to build a website and get on Facebook to improve our billings. I have no idea why I can't do those things, I'd say, but I can't. I want to do them, those ordinary night and weekend things, holiday things, vacation things. Please stop stepping on my heels, she'd say. You know as well as anyone just how small this office is. Don't you know, I'd say, how much I'd love to go to a bar and watch a game? Don't you know how much I'd love a whole bunch of buds, a whole bunch of dude buds hollering yo at me when I came through the door? Yo and mofo and beer me and hey bro and all of that. All of my best dude buds on bar stools drinking beer, watching the game with me. I am going inside to tend to a patient now, she'd say. I'm afraid we will have to continue this conversation at another time. I would really like that, Betsy, to cheer and jeer and hoot and root alongside a band of brothers. I would love that. But do you have any idea how much attention you have to pay to a Red Sox game, even a regular season Red Sox game? I have decided that I'm going to stand here and listen to you until you are quite finished, she'd say, because I feel I have touched a nerve. But just because I choose not to have a bunch of dude buds, don't think I don't worry about what I'm missing out on. Don't think I'm not haunted knowing that I might be missing out on things that I'd much prefer not to be missing out on. 
I am haunted, Betsy. You think I alienate myself from society? Of course I alienate myself from society. It's the only way I know of not being constantly reminded of all of the ways I'm alienated from society. That doesn't mean I have anything against other people. Envy them? Of course. Marvel at them? Constantly. Secretly study them? Every day. I just don't get any closer to understanding them. And liking something you don't understand, estranged from it without reason, longing to commute with it, commune with it, who'd ask for it? I ask you, Betsy, who would ask for it? Are you quite finished now, she'd ask. This is turning out to be one of the longest ordeals of my life. <laughs> but do you want to know what I don't understand even more than I don't understand the boating and the tanning? Reading about the boating and the tanning online... I was already at one remove before the internet came along. I need another remove. Now I have to spend the time that I'm not doing the thing they're doing. Reading about them doing it, streaming all of the clips of them doing it, commenting on how lucky they are to be doing all of those things, liking and digging and bookmarking and posting and retweeting all of those things and feeling more disconnected than ever. Where does this idea of greater connection come from? I've never in my life felt more disconnected. It's like how the rich get richer. The connected get more connected while the disconnected just get more disconnected. No thanks, man. I can't do it. The world was a sufficient trial, Betsy, before Facebook. I take back my suggestion that you have something against other people, she'd say. And I'll never suggest a website or a Facebook page ever again. I was a dentist, not a website. I was a muddle, not a brand. I was a man, not a profile. They wanted to contain my life with a summary of its purchases and preferences, prescription medications and predictable behaviors. That was not a man. That was an animal in a cage. She'd say, when was the last time you attended church? I'd tell her. She'd say, never is not an option. Everyone has been to church at least once. Try being honest. I'd tell her. She'd say, oh, for heaven's sake, no one worships a little blue leprechaun. First of all, leprechauns are not blue. Second of all, you know as well as anyone that leprechauns did not make heaven and earth. I see no reason to believe in leprechauns and every reason to believe in God. I see God in the sky and I see God on the street. Can you really sit there and suggest to me that you do not feel God at work in the world? I'd tell her. She'd say, one cannot feel the work of the Big Bang. Why must you always bring up the Big Bang when we're trying to have a discussion about God? I'd tell her. She'd say, but you can't be good on account of the Big Bang. You can only be good on account of God. Don't you want to be good? I'd tell her. She'd say, metaphysical blackmail, my patootie. I want you to answer me. Do you think you're good? I'd say, yes, I thought I was good. And then she'd say, she'd think about that for a minute. And she'd say, her voice would drop and she'd put her hand on my arm. And she'd say, but are you well? She'd say, are you well? Thank you. Good evening. I was doing a reading a couple days ago, and over the course of the Q&A, people kept asking me questions that felt strangely similar, and they would come back to certain ideas like, why are your characters so sad? And do your characters want to kill themselves? And do you want to kill yourself? Which I don't, I'm fine, don't worry about it. So it's really lovely to read after Josh and to read with Josh. And um, I think on the, only on the surface of it do we not share a lot, but we actually share, I think, a ton in common. Because with all that humor, there's this great like, sadness and despair in his characters. 
and we live really close to each other, which no one ever mentions, but I think we're going to insert that into our bios, is that like we live three blocks away from each other. I'm just much happier and funnier than him in real life. <laughs> I'm going to read two, maybe, or at least one small passage from this book. This first section takes place from the point of view of a social worker named Helen, and Helen is responsible for introducing this man, Isaac, who's just come from, um, from Africa to this small town in the Midwest in the early 1970s. So this is, this is Helen. I knew my time with Isaac was temporary. His visa granted him one year, and we never discussed the possibility of extending it. I did, despite my best efforts to stay grounded, sometimes imagine that one day we'd drive together to City Hall, nicely dressed, carrying simple silver bands picked up from the town's largest grocery store in our pockets so that we could declare our marriage in front of a judge and in the hope that by doing so, we would be able to make something permanent, a shared life which, as the saying goes, no man or woman could tear asunder. I imagined us living on a large farm far away from any town and family with only chickens and acres of corn for company. How would you feel about living on a farm, I asked Isaac. That depends, he said. Are you there with me? Maybe if you were good, I'd come visit on the weekends, I said. When it came to more domestic fantasies, however, we fell apart. The distance between what we had and what we wanted was too close if we dreamed. It was too obvious if we dreamed too close to home. I remember taking him to the post office once so he could mail a letter to his mother. While we stood in line to buy stamps, I asked him what her name was. He looked up, as if he no longer knew the answer to that question, or had lost the right to answer it. Her name doesn't matter, he said. Everyone only calls her Imaye. It means mother. When we reached the teller, Isaac handed me the envelope. He was shy speaking in front of strangers, so I was the one who asked how many stamps were needed to mail the letter. While we waited, I tried to pronounce her name the same way he had. I said out loud, Imaya, Imayu. Not even close, he said. He pronounced it once more so I could hear how far off I was, and finally, after failing two more times, I laughed and said, forget it. When we meet, I'll just call her mother. Isaac became silent. What I had said bothered him, but I didn't know well enough yet to understand why, but I felt the distance expanding between us. We paid for the stamps and left the post office, and it wasn't until we were alone in the car that he told me what he was thinking. It doesn't do us any good to talk about things that will never happen, he said. And so I promised myself I would never ask him about his family again. And by and large, I stayed true to that. I thought as well, however, that if we couldn't have a future, I could at least try to make the most out of our present. We were running out of errands and chores to complete, and it was time, I told him, we moved on to something else. We're going to have to find something else to do, I said, except go to the grocery store. What would you like? I thought of all the possible options open to us. I thought of what normal couples did. They went to the movies, dinner. They invited friends over on the weekends, and they had beach vacations. I knew we couldn't get away with any of that. So I told Isaac, I don't know, but I'll come up with something. I decided over breakfast with my mother that certain risks had to be taken if Isaac and I were going to have any sort of life together. I didn't make that decision lightly. She asked me that morning while setting the table, do you have a new friend, Helen? 
She was dependent on gentle phrasing. That was the register we carried all our conversations in. Would you like to help me with the shopping this weekend, Helen? Do you think it's time we change the curtains in the living room, Helen? And I always responded in kind. No one that I know of, I said. But I promised to keep looking. We weren't divided like the South and had nothing to do with any of the large cities in the North. We were exactly what geography had made us. Middle of the road. Never bitterly segregated, but with lines dividing black from white all over town, whether in neighborhoods, churches, schools, or parks. We lived semi-peacefully apart, like a married couple in separate wings of a large house. That was the image I had in mind during breakfast when I decided something different had to be done. Change. It seemed to be everywhere except Laurel. I set my sights low. Incremental progress was my philosophy. Isaac and I didn't have to be heroes. There had been enough of those already, and in many ways, I reasoned, Isaac and I had already picked up the fight. We just hadn't known that was what we were doing. I made a list of all the places we had gone to in the three months since we'd met. At the, since we'd met. the grocery store, mall, post office, bank, Goodwill. I thought of them while sitting at my desk and tried to remember if any obvious signs of affection had passed between us. I came up with a crude value system to measure each trip by. One, shopping for food. After sex and children, what could be more intimate in America than choosing what kind of meat to cook? The grocery store was the first place in our town that I knew for certain we had conquered. We went once, sometimes twice a week. We laughed in the aisles, took turns pushing the cart. I gave Isaac cooking lessons at the meat counter. Those were all important victories. Two, the post office. I had to admit that it had been a terrible loss. And because it was a government office, I felt I had to weigh the defeat a bit more. One post office defeat was the equivalent of two grocery store victories. Mail was dangerous. Personal letters especially. They pointed to great distances in old, mysterious lives I knew nothing about. There were tellers instead of clerks, forms that had to be filled. It could be difficult, if not impossible, to win in a place like that. Three. Anything else that was related to shopping. Furniture. Plates. Cutlery. We had chosen all that together right under the skeptical eye of the clerks, and had Isaac and I touched each other once, I would have said we dealt an important blow against segregation. But I had to be honest. I knew we never touched except by accident, so I had to temper the victory with the knowledge that we could have done better. What I needed next were new targets. The first one that came to mind was the most obvious, and I couldn't believe I hadn't thought of it earlier. A week after our defeat at the post office, I called Isaac from my office and said I wanted to take him out to lunch. To lunch? Yes, I said. For lunch. I'm tired of eating at my desk alone. I chose the same diner my father had gone to every morning, and where as a child I joined him on Saturday afternoons. The diner was never officially segregated, but I couldn't remember anyone who wasn't white eating there either. In this case, it was etiquette and not a sign that served as the cover for our division. Before I left to pick up Isaac, I wrote down on a piece of paper, in case I forgot it later, we have every right to be here. We arrived shortly after noon when I knew the count of the restaurant would be crowded. Isaac said he could meet me there, but I insisted on picking him up so everyone could see us walk in together. The lunch counter was already full. 
Of the half dozen men sitting there, I knew three by name and the others were familiar. Bill, whose chest and forearms were known throughout Laurel for the strong black hair that sprouted from them, was leaning over the counter, smiling half-heartedly at everyone who came and left. My father used to tell me to be careful with my food when Bill stood over us. He sheds, he told me, like a dog. In the scripted version that I'd played in my head during the five-minute drive from Isaac's apartment to the restaurant, the entire diner fell silent as soon as we entered. All eyes turned towards us, and we ignored them. We didn't hold hands. That would have been too provocative. But we did pause to look at each other with what I thought of as an abundance of affection. In the version we lived, no one stopped talking. Bill saw me as soon as I walked in and pointed to a table in the middle of the diner. Isaac followed me, but I was so focused on making it to the table that I never stopped to notice if anyone was staring at him. We took our seats. When I picked up my menu as a cover so I could look around the room, I realized no one had noticed yet how remarkable we were. Isaac saw my gaze wandering. Why are we here, he asked me. I looked around the room again. I thought I saw Bill and two of the men at the counter staring in our general direction. No reason, I told him. I just wanted to get out. I asked Isaac what he had done all day. I was at the library, he said. He described the book on contemporary American architecture he had been reading. I told him twice that it sounded very interesting. Fascinating, I said, what they can build these days. Chit-chat. Simple conversation. When Isaac put his hand on the table, I took his pinky and index finger in mine, and I held them for two, maybe three seconds while looking at the menu. I used a strand of loose hair as an excuse to let go. Our waitress came and took our order. I ordered the fried chicken. Isaac pointed to the Denver omelet and let me order for him. After our waitress left, I turned my attention back to the counter. I wanted to tell Isaac what my father had said about Bill. But he was no longer there. And with him gone, the men at the counter stopped pretending they weren't staring at us. I tried to ignore them, but then our waitress came back empty-handed, and I felt certain if I looked over again, I'd see those men smiling. She was young fresh out of high school. Had I been younger, I would have known who she was. She had a kind, round face and wore her dark brown hair in a bun. She leaned over and whispered to us, Bill wants to know if you would like to take your food with you. She was doing her best to be kind. Isaac understood immediately what was happening and in the same breath knew how to respond. Before I could answer, he told her, No, we would rather eat here. Polite yet determined. She nodded her head. She had no idea what else she can do. Isaac pursed his lips and waited until she had turned to the kitchen before turning his attention to me. Do you come here frequently, he asked. I nodded yes and then changed my mind and said, no, not really. Which one is it? I used to come when I was younger, I said, but I, I don't that often anymore. It was true. The diner was a few blocks away, but I went there once a month at most. We should go, I said. Isaac hadn't stopped staring at me since the waitress left. I was tempted to confess my reasons for bringing him, but I realized it didn't have to. The best intentions didn't change what was obvious. I should have known better. I'm not going to run, he said. I'm going to eat my lunch. And briefly, I felt bold again. I saw myself adding this lunch to my column of victories once I returned to the office.
If we made it through this, then perhaps there was nothing in the world that we couldn't conquer, from post offices to movie theaters and the all-too-perilous family dinner at home. I was imagining what my mother would say if Isaac were to show up one Sunday evening when his lunch arrived. The same waitress brought it, although this time she didn't look at either of us. Her embarrassment was evident. Isaac's omelet was on a stack of thin paper plates barely large enough to hold the food. A plastic fork and knife had been wrapped in a napkin and placed on top, a strangely delicate touch that she must have been responsible for. He unwrapped the knife and fork and placed the palm-sized napkin on his lap. Do you mind if I start? I hate my eggs when they're cold, he said. He spoke so calmly, I assumed he was joking, and I suppose to some degree he was. I tried to laugh. Ha ha! But then he cut his omelet into seven even pieces before taking the first bite. He chewed slowly. With every bite, I was reminded that we were no longer, if ever, on the same side. He had finished his omelet by the time my order arrived on the standard cream-colored plates used for everyone other than Isaac. The waitress tried to walk away quickly, but I grabbed her by the wrist and told her I wanted to cancel my order. Tell Bill that I don't want to eat here, I said. The poor child. She was struggling not to cry. We didn't make it any easier on her. Leave the plate, Isaac said. We're going to stay and eat it. She hurried back to the kitchen. I stared at the plate of chicken and mashed potatoes and blinked twice, childishly hoping I could make it vanish. Please, I said, let's leave now. He shook his head no. Not until we both finished our lunch, he said. That's what you wanted, isn't it? If that was his way of settling the score, then I thought I could play along just as well. For the next ten minutes, I slowly took my food apart, and with my first half-hearted stab into the chicken, all the momentum was gone. There was nothing we could change. I felt a regression back to my mother's kitchen table where I'd spent nights and afternoons laboring to finish a meal my father had never shown up for and that my mother had refused. I'd always known there was something cruel in her insistence that I eat every bite on my plate while my father's food grew cold next to me. She needed a victim besides herself, and when I finally looked up at Isaac after a few minutes and saw him smiling at me, I knew there was something slightly cruel lurking in his gaze. I was too busy, though, creating a new story to linger on that thought. And in this story, Isaac and I were still heroes. The fact that we chose to sit there and linger when every part of me wanted to run was proof of the sacrifices we were willing to make. When we left the restaurant and were back in the car, he said to me, Now you know. This is how they break you. Slowly. In pieces. And actually, I'm going to stop there. I think we so I think I'll start with a question for both of you, and either one of you can answer first. What were your early influences? Did you come from reading families, families of storytellers? Did you read a lot? And what did you read? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, my, my, my family definitely read. Um, but I'd say maybe the bigger influence wasn't what was read or, or not read, but you know, there's this sort of normal trope that writers have, not, not really a trope, that's unfair, but that we sort of write because we, we hear a lot of stories, we, stories are passed down. And I felt like I, I started writing because I was very ap- aware of an absence of stories in our life. There was a sort of 
a great big hole in our family narrative about what happened after we left Ethiopia and came to America, and the sort of divide in those experiences of like growing up in America in a radically different way from the experiences my parents had, and, and not ever having narratives that reflected that, knowing that there weren't stories that kind of like gave semblance to your experience in, in a narrative form, that stories that you could look to that echoed your life in ways that you needed to see those stories echoed, and stories that kind of helped you understand who your parents were and what happened to them and who you were and who you were becoming. So writing was, um, was you know, one way of filling that. And then, of course, you know, we all sort of read a lot, I think, I hope. I mean, my parents couldn't shut up about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, enough already with this story. You've told it so many times. <laughs> My, my parents read a lot to me when, like, bedtime stories, you know, and that's probably where my love of stories come from, I guess. I mean, they read a lot. And I remember going to the same books over and over and requesting the same books over and over again. But, you know, now that I watch my kid, like, make up stories and, and just sort of spin little tales in these actually magnificent epics, I realize that it's somewhere, it's sort of, like, inborn, I yeah. think. It's like some... Because, you know, when I was like eight and I said, I said to my mom, I want to, I was writing these little goofy things like Mad Magazine things and, and Alfred Hitchcock ripoffs. And I said to my mom, can I use a curse word? And she's, and my mom, who is not the most sophisticated literary woman in the world, said, if it's in the service of the story. Like more or less, that's what she yeah. said. And I was so floored by this, and I, you know, I used the, the curse word. But she's like extremely encouraging. But then, you know, I re- also remember a time we lived in Key West, and there at that time there were still spindle racks of Hemingway novels in the drugstores. And I was like 12 or 13. I said, "Would I like these?" And she said, "No, they're terribly boring." <laughs> <laughs> so it took me a long time to discover him yeah. because I thought oh, he's dull. So you know, I mean, it's a it's a mixed bag. But I really do think, looking at my kid, that it's. It's a, yeah. it's a switch that gets turned on and doesn't get turned off. Yeah, yeah my, my, my youngest son at four just finished his first book called Louis and the Colossal Squid. Oh, it's, actually, it's the Colossal Squid and Louis. And we admired the fact that the Colossal Squid was more important than him. Yeah. He's like, you know, that's a great sense of narrative trajectory, right? Like, the squid is why you're going to read the book, right? You don't need to read the book about yeah. the little kid, but you need to read it about the squid. But maybe, I was wondering, if, like, I, I know I, I had a point where like narrative became vital to me, right? So it wasn't just only to try to fill in the gaps in my family's life, but at some point, stories became, like reading became the most like vital thing that I had in my life. It became more important than having any relationship with people. And so like when I got to college, I had like, my roommate was like, dude, what did you bring? And I was like, I brought a bunch of used, dirty paperbacks. Yeah. And he wasn't really happy about that. And he's like, you were supposed to bring a TV. And I was like, I know, <laughs> but I don't have money for a TV. But I got all these paperbacks. <laughs> Um, and so he went and bought a TV. <laughs> and then I spent the next like three years kind of like using books as um, almost kind of like a defense mechanism because I, was, I didn't feel always settled with the people around me, but I didn't have to feel... You could walk into a room, and if you didn't know anybody in the room with you, I always had a book that I could then just pull out in a slightly pretentious yeah. way, sit down, and that was like a sort of armor that you had. Yeah, well, and now, of course, them I mean, the shore is up against barbarism, yeah. right? Books in general. But when you're younger, you use them to define yourself. Totally, yeah. And, and to sort of uh, differentiate yourself yeah. from the, the barbarians of high school. <laughs> so I'd like to just follow up a little bit with you. You, you were two when your family moved to the United States, and you have said in other interviews that you grew up fully American, but your home life was the life of an immigrant family. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what that was like and how 
that then has translated to your writing. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I'd say, I'd say the life of the immigrant is the life of the American. And oftentimes we, we sort of try to exclude those two things as being like, that's the sort of immigrant experience and that's the American experience. And we're just waiting for our immigrants to become American. And that's a sort of like false dichotomy, you know. And, and as a child, you sort of grow up thinking that way, that you're somehow supposed to be nervous about what happens when you cross the threshold of your house and your parents have food that smells strange. And my mom would be like, I'm not going to make Ethiopian food before you go to school because you're going to smell. And she still does it to this day. And I'm like, you're crazy, right? Like, it's just onions. You're cooking onions. We're not going to smell. But that anxiety comes from feeling like somehow this brands you as, as, as foreign. Um, and in fact, like, I think writing becomes a way of arguing that that immigrant experience isn't, an, isn't sort of a separate identity from American, it actually is the sort of American identity. And that if anything, you're, you're, you're complicating that sense that somehow you should be worried about those things not fitting into a sort of a cultural performance that is oftentimes really poorly defined and limiting. Um, and so you want to write stories that say, look, like, you know, here's a guy who also has a name that sounds slightly strange and foreign and you don't have to be scared. You're not gonna, you're gonna be totally okay. You can read that story and you will still feel like you know that person. It's not a distinct American narrative. It's not a sort of immigrant narrative about America. It's an American narrative that happens to involve other people different from you. So do you think people, readers in general, would think of foreign as scary or off-putting or...? Well, I, I, don't, I don't think readers do. I think um, the people that put books in readers' hands sometimes do. Like the title of my first novel was Children of the Revolution, and my publishers made me change it into the beautiful things that heaven bears because Children of the Revolution was going to sound sort of too political. And I think we conflate the idea of the political novel with the novels of sort of like minorities or ethnic groups or immigrants. We think of those novels as somehow inherently being exclusionary to the sort of grander narrative of, of an American narrative. And that's just not true. It's just because those stories take on America just from a slightly different lens. They're not... And that different lens, of course, takes on a kind of more political context because you're putting characters... Um, into relationships with people who are different from them, who are going to have to deal with their race, with their class, with their ethnicity, and to exclude them from being literary forms, to put them into sort of like weird marginal categories um, is one way, one of devaluing what I think literature can sort of do. It devalues what American literature has done for a very, very long time. Um, and it devalues the reader, right? It says like you readers don't value narratives unless they somehow look like you. And I don't think that's why people read. Or they say, that's not why I read. When you were a young man reading, did, were there books that you read that you felt like, this does look like me or this does feel like me, even if no. it wasn't the same exact set of circumstances, but some that you identified with? Yeah. I, we probably should have this in common. Like, The Catcher in the Rye was the, one of the first books that got me to love because he hates everyone. <laughs> I was like, dude, that's, he goes to like a private school that he hates it. And I was like, that's exactly what I lived through. And so Holden Caulfield became one of the first vehicles for me to get into books. And from there, you know, you can begin to complicate that story. But that, and that reminds me constantly that like I didn't need to read a story about Saifa or an Ethiopian immigrant in high school in America, right? I just needed somebody who felt alone and alienated and wanted to have something different. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what that experience allowed me to do. And what about you, Joshua? What books did you read that, that you identified with? Well, I, I, the, probably the first like, adult book that I read, I was uh, 13 and I read Lolita. I, I don't know exactly why. I asked, uh, <laughs> I asked my, uh, my, I guess I was in sophomore year in high school, I asked her if she had it. Oh, I do know why. It was in, it's uh, name-checked in, um, in a police song. 
Oh, right? the book by Nabokov. Yeah. Yeah, the book yeah. by Nabokov. So I puzzled who, what, what that book was, and I asked my teacher if she, if she knew of it, and by God, she had it on the shelf and just handed and it to me. And she gave it to you? Yeah, which I find kind of extraordinary yeah. because, you know, I mean, it's, by now it's clearly a classic and nobody really gives you any grief, but she still took a chance, to, a 35-year-old teacher handing a 13-year-old boy a copy of Lolita. And I read it, and, I, and, and at the beginning of the, the book, of course, there's the fake foreword from John Ray Jr. And I thought, well, this is true. I mean, this is, all of this is true. This is a memoir. And I, but then I would look on the back, and it said fiction literature. And I just couldn't understand that, how there could be a, a foreword from a doctor. And <laughs> on back there was fiction. So I was captivated from the very beginning. And, and I would read it, and of course, I didn't understand every third word. And I would diligently, I really like not knowing words. Mm-hmm. And I would highlight them. And, and then look them up. And so I started reading Nabokov when I was very, very young. And so when, I, when it got around to the books that I was supposed to write, like, like The Catcher in the Rye, I was like, this guy doesn't know how to use words. <laughs> He's so simple. This isn't writing. This is, this is typing. Uh... So, you know, it, it was a circuitous route to come at some of the stuff that I now love a great deal because when you read a maximalist and a stylist as, as awesome as Nabokov, I kind of you know, makes everybody else seem sort of silly until I matured and just sort of realized that there's more to it. And then, uh, you know, I uh, incorporated a lot of things that I think that I dismissed as... Like Hemingway was, in fact, boring to me (laughs) for a while. (laughs) You want to talk more about that? So I think both of you do write about people, men primarily, who are trying to figure out where they belong in life, trying to find their tribe. And I'm wondering why this is interesting to you, why this is something that fascinates you both. Uh, You know, I think that the question of belonging fascinates me. Um, To what extent the individual must remain an individual and can yet still allow um, being subsumed into a larger group. I think that fascinates me, in part because I believe that the only way that you kind of navigate the world is by having strong opinions, firm beliefs, principles, ethics, a system of ethics. And yet at the same time, all of it would be bunk, all of it would be worthless were it not for the other. And in particular, groups, families, um, in, in the, in some, you know, for some people, religion, sports, communal activities that make you understand what it is that kind of a, uh, your larger purpose is. I mean, it's, I'm not just here to have firm opinions. I'm here to sort of help and, and give safe passage to the people that I love. And they form a community for me. And, so I, and yet at the same time, they do things that are so ridiculous. <laughs> and we do things on behalf of the group that are so compromising. Uh, that I have to then I, I buck against it a little bit. And so that push and pull, the negotiation that one w- rides between the self and the, and the community, is just endlessly fascinating to me. But your characters seem to have so much difficulty finding this community. And I'm wondering why that is. I mean, do you think that that is part of modern life, that we're so fragmented that this community has become impossible to find? Well, I would say, I would get lofty, and I would say that ultimately, the, like the ultimate community, I think, is, is with God. It is a kind of heaven, right? Uh, 
It's a utopia. And I think that some of the problems that I've noticed in my life, like with the men in my life in particular, the, the difficult men in my family, they cannot compromise enough. They, cannot, they don't feel as if the communities that they might be a part of are perfect enough. They have these grudges. It reminds me, I guess, of, of something that was said once about Gandhi. Gandhi loved humanity, but didn't care too much for human beings. And this is, is, seems to be a real vein of rebellion in, my, in, my, in the men in my family. They, they, they tend to speak in rapturous tones about progressive ideals. But you get them on the highway, and they're just a bunch of dicks. <laughs> and I don't, you know, I don't, I don't get it. You know, aren't these the same people that you wanted to usher into the utopia that you're now? You literally want to kill that uh-huh. man. And I don't get it. So I see this, and you know, and I see that there are larger issues, not just that, but certainly that. But there are larger issues when it comes to trying to allow for compromises to belong, and yet still feel as if you are expressing yourself, despite how difficult that self may be. And Tina, do you want to talk about that as well? Um, sure. Um, I like characters who, who have been sort of emptied and stripped. And you know, like one of the reasons why I sort of hate the idea or the sort of category of like an immigrant narrative is that, for me, it's not about so much about the immigration, but it's about the characters who have lost all the things that they have normally used, that we normally use to define ourselves, right? We can sometimes define ourselves based on where we come from, who we are, our names, the color of our skin, and you take a character out of their homes and you take them away from their country, you take them away from their family, you get to sort of strip them bare. And I've, I've always find that to be an amazing and compelling place to sort of write out of. There's this great part of a poem from Adrian Rich from Diving Into the Records, like, I know you are reading this, et cetera, et cetera, there where you have landed stripped as you are. And I always think of that kind of that phrase kind of runs in my head a lot when I'm writing is, um, what happens to a person, man or woman, when you sort of strip them and then you set them off into the world and you try to figure out how can they remake themselves and what are the things that sort of, and the people that they can find and gather around them to make themselves into something different, into something new because they can no longer be who they thought they were. And if you, if you go through any sort of, I think, traumatic loss, that's the thing that happens to you. You know, you lose a country or you lose your parents or you lose people that you love really closely and a part of you has been kind of taken away and you have to think, reconstitute that part of your identity and figure out like who are you now in the wake of that loss and how are the people around you going to help you form that identity. And yeah, and that's, I think it's, I like doing that with characters who aren't just immigrants. I think all my characters, even the ones who are sort of like very deeply rooted in the communities and the homes that they love and live in, they're characters who have given up something important and need somebody else. Um, and I think it's like the same idea of community that you're also stressing, right? Like you become part of who you are by the people you're able to gather and protect and form a commune with. Yeah. yeah. And did you see this in your own family? Yeah. We were sort of like, you know, we grew up very much without a community. You know, so I, I can say that I grew up feeling very... American, whatever that sort of is, but also at the same time, I grew up very aware of the fact that my parents had no one else around them, that my father would like wander the streets of the various suburbs we lived in, like, you know, endlessly repeating the death of his brother's name who had died in the revolution, and that was almost like a prayer or a mantra, and that became this sort of looming identity. I remember my grandfather passed away, I was five years old, and coming home and seeing my parents just devastated by this loss and knowing that that person that had passed away was once kind of like my father, but I had no memory of him. 
and they couldn't actually participate in the grief that they were going through, and still can't, except in a kind of like, I have to imagine my way into that. And oftentimes what I'm doing is I'm imagining my way into the experiences of people who have lost much more than I have. Mm -hmm. uh, my life has been, has been fortunately pretty blessed. But even when I'm sort of reporting and doing writing from the point of view of people who have gone through, who have lost their, commun their, their homes or their towns or whatever the case may be in different places in Africa, what I'm fascinated by is the way those people, again, have kind of like, their world has been laid bare around them. And I have to imagine my way into that. I, whether or not I do so successfully, I think is totally questionable. But I do find it compelling as a place to start from. Would you talk a little bit about your reporting? Why did you start reporting? You have an MFA, you're a fiction writer, and yet you know, you've done a lot of this international reporting. Partly because writing, you know, I, I wrote fiction and fiction became the vehicle through which I could begin to do the nonfiction that I wanted to do. You know, it's like you spend a lot of time creating and inventing characters, and then I realized that people would allow me to actually experience the stories that I was trying to imagine. And wanting to feel like here's another way of of engaging the world around you, that here's another way of like looking at the world and saying, well, I have a small set of tools which are just sort of language and words and feeling what, what frustrates me the most about our conversations around politics is the sort of mediocrity with which we use language to describe places, right? The use of very poor terms like hell or the sort of like tragedy or the awfulness of certain places, that's just poor imagination. And, and part of what you do as a novelist is you imagine, I think hopefully you try to imagine on a slightly deeper level and so wanting to do nonfiction was exactly kind of that, was wanting to say, well, like, if you call a place hell, you've stopped thinking about it. It's not actually a real place anymore. You can't actually imagine or empathize with hell. Mm -hmm. um, it's a total and it's an absolute, but you can imagine a place if you let readers see it as something complex and rich and beautiful. So are you continuing to do journalism as well as write fiction? It's been a while, but yeah, I'm, I'm doing a story soon, in the next couple, in a month or so. Okay. I wondered if we could also talk a little bit about voice and, and point of view. You know, Joshua, your first book was first person plural, which was just seamless and, and fascinating to read. And now in, in your most recent book, as you were reading, you know, you have your dialogue. You don't give all the dialogue. You just, I said, I said, and you, you just let it be implied or understood. You know, half of your book is written in the in a woman's voice, through a woman's point of view. So I wonder if you could just talk, both of you, about these are sort of, they're, they're interesting ways of doing something a little bit different, not just writing straightforward, like your first books were from a male point of view. So if you could just talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, I think it's really important to kind of uh, let the reader do things, you know, to let the reader imagine. It's then it, that it becomes the most cooperative and engaged reading experience, I think. And so in my first book, you know, I had to figure out how to make the we work because it couldn't be like, yeah, then we went to the John. That was, <laughs> weird. Or we put on our red shoes and, you know, danced around. So I couldn't, like, violate it that much, but I could do things that were like, we, you know, like the way it begins, we were fractious and overpaid. And at that point, you've got to, like, the reader actually has to say, okay, I have to engage here. Like it's vague, it's vague and maybe even for a while too nebulous, but eventually it starts to come and you start to form this idea of who consists of the group. And so I really, was really asking for a lot of work from the reader. And in this case, I'm understanding that the reader is really quick and does a lot of imagination, brings a lot of imagination to bear to the page. And I'm always trying 
to make fiction basically as efficient as it can be, you know, so that hanging around are not all these long, dull... His answers to those questions when I wrote them out were dull. Mm -hmm. When I excised them, the conversation came to life. So I think form and point of view, I'm always futzing with them in order basically to make my exchange with the reader a far, far more active and engaged and interesting one. I would agree with, with well, not because I've never written in the we, um, but the we creates this sort of, in the, in the first book, this sort of great engagement with the reader where you do feel like you're, you're asked to, um, to buy in or not buy in, and the buying in is such a better proposition that you, you do it. Um, but it's also like, I mean, for me, it's, it's a lot of times it's form, thinking about what the structure of the novel is going to be, and that structure helps me sort of figure out also the possible range of voices. So um, having, a, having half the narrative told from the point of view of a woman wasn't only just because like, I liked her voice and her voice felt really natural and organic and as soon as she presented herself, um, I felt compelled by her, but it was also reminding me of the fact that like, you know, I like narratives that sort of do structural things that shows how different parts of a story are, are in conversation with each other, so past and present. We can sort of write a linear narrative or we can, or I'd like to write narratives where you kind of like take time apart in a different way and having two different voices in this novel, you know, it, had a, it, it created a narrative suspension, I hope, because oftentimes my stories don't have that much tension. And so this was a chance to sort of actually do that, right? To actually have different voices interrupting each other and yet still participating in the same, in the, in the construction of the same narrative, right? They're both painting a picture, but just from different sides. And so at one point you begin with the narrative and here's this guy drawing the story for you and then there's, here's Helen drawing the same story for you and slowly, bit by bit, they're filling in this portrait of, of a couple, of a war, of a conflict, of love, and they do it so together, but with very different needs. And figuring out what the needs of each of those characters were, um, I think is hopefully part of the joy for the reader too, right? Like you want the reader to feel like the narratives are giving them different experiences that they need, right? Like one voice is a little bit lighter and darker than the other one, and they begin to dialogue with each other. And the reader hopefully is like, like, oh yeah, Helen would sort of know that because Isaac in the earlier chapters had said that, and you can see that conversation. Because to some degree, it's the same conversation you want the reader to be having with the book themselves, right? You want them to sort of be interrogating it as they're going along. But it's even, I mean, you have Isaac telling the story from Uganda and then from Laurel. Yeah. He's a secondary character. Yeah. And, and so you're seeing him through someone else's mm -hmm. eyes. And I'm wondering, was that a hard shift for you to do, to get out of his brain and then show him? He, because he seems... He seems a little different. Yeah. You know? Well, because also, I, I, it's like I couldn't understand him until I understood him through Helen. Mm -hmm. So she became part of the ways in which I understood. I understood what happened to him in Uganda because he was able to tell that story. But what happened at the end of that experience wasn't realized until I could put him into the U.S. and have this other woman tell me what happened to him now. Like, who, what kind of man has he become after having experienced all the things that he tells us about himself? And so to some degree, he's not able to narrate that sort of post-traumatic experience, she mm -hmm. becomes the vehicle to narrate that trauma for him. Like by watching him through her, you get to understand the ways in which he sort of has been shunted off as a result of that and what it takes for him and for the two of them together to make something better than the lives that they've had before. So it just it? amazes me that you're still here. It's like, <laughs> what time is it? And how, how, just how tired are you people? You're all still here. If we had like a little mini bar cart running through yeah. the aisles, I think. I saw, you know, there's uh, something called like bicycle bar or something like that. <laughs> Did you see this? Yeah. Pedal bar? Pedal bar. That's cool. Yeah. Oh. No. You don't want to be driving behind one. 
Um, so Joshua, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the research that you do because your books are, your characters have such distinct jobs. And when I read the first one, oh, Joshua must have some advertising experience. And then I read the second one, I thought, oh, he's also a lawyer. And then, you know, I read the third one and it's like, God, he's a dentist too. Because it's, because it's more than just the details of the job, it's how they think about the job and quirky little things that only a dentist would know about dentistry. And you're not an old man. You can't have spent like years doing this research, but it's so thorough. And I guess I'm wondering like how you do it, but also why, why do you do it? Why are they so grounded in these jobs? I do it by cheating a lot. I mean, I, you know, I buy some books, and you dip into the books, and there's the vocabulary word, and you're like, wow, that's a cool word. You know, that's, that's a cool tool that somebody's got to use. And then I'm, I remember it, and I'm riding along, and I think, I need to convince the reader here that he's a dentist. And so I go back into the book, and I pull it out, and I'm like, there's the vocabulary word. And then at that point, you're like, wow, he's a dentist. So it's not that hard, but I also had to think pretty hard about what it really meant at the end of the day mm -hmm. to be peering into somebody's mouth. And it really does mean peering into somebody's mouth and that somebody really thinks that at best you're a colossal pain in the ass. You're not there to help them. You don't have any wisdom. You're a kind of obligation, a weird obligation to the animal. And then you're dispatched and you can go about your life. But in fact, I find dentists to be a great repository of knowledge. I mean, they can improve your life considerably, and yet we ignore them constantly. So what does it mean to be peering into a mouth, trying to help that mouth, seeing nothing but rot, decay, and death, and then thinking, I'm going to try to help this person improve, giving this advice to this person, and this person basically saying, no offense, but I hate you. <laughs> Where's the thanks in that? So that kind of research, which isn't really research, it's thinking, it's imagining, much as you were describing imagining. It's just imagining. And then it's putting it forth onto the page into every sentence that you can possibly think of and just putting it in there all the time. And that, you know, it's, it's like accumulating some kind of conviction based on imagination and then executing it, being so convinced that you convince yourself, you know? And then at that point, the reader comes along pretty, pretty much, you know, believing. Do you have like a, a almost like a somewhat preconceived like existential idea of like what these professions would equate to, right? So like dentistry becomes also kind of like metaphor for yeah, for sure, yeah. yeah. And that was really crucial to the to the book and to the themes of the book. I mean, I always knew that I wanted the guy to be a dentist, but I didn't know I didn't know much about yeah. dentistry. So I was like, he's not going to be a dentist. I'd have to do so much research. <laughs> and then I thought, well, okay, I'll, I'll you know I'll make him a dentist, and it became. Real, but then of course all of the things fell in line. Yeah, the way that yeah, I was yeah. thinking about him in deep, in much deeper ways yeah. than, than his profession yeah. fell in line, yeah. and the profession just fed that. So there was a kind of feedback loop, nice feed feedback loop between his character and his profession. You know, and a dentist has got all these shiny tools and stabbing things and interesting things. When you walk in, you're like, what is all this <laughs> shit? Like, if I have to come here for that thing, I'm not no. coming. <laughs> and I wanted to know what that thing was. You asked also, you know, what is this thing that makes me want to do it? I think being a fiction writer allows you to, to realize in a full sense the great, colorful panoply of professions that are out there. I got the one go around, right? This is it. And by being a fiction writer, I get to be very promiscuous with <coughs> my professions, you know? I mean, I don't have yeah. to just be stuck being a dude that goes into work every day. I can, like, imagine myself 
I mean, if I were a dentist, I wouldn't be a happy man. I'd be much like my narrator. You know? Because I'm not a dentist, I'm fairly happy. But imagining him and trying to like really get a sense of what it must be like to go in. I mean, he's well paid. He's got everything taken care of, right? He lives in a beautiful apartment in Brooklyn. He's a great profession in, in Manhattan. But he's miserable. Why is he miserable? Well, there are some serious reasons why. And I wanted to take those reasons seriously. This is a tricky question for AWP, but both of you have MFAs, and I'm wondering your thoughts on that. <laughs> I mean, can we ask how many people here have an MFA or getting one, and then, and then base our answer on, yeah, on your yeah, response? How many people want to feel good about your no MFA? There's no voting. Okay, if you want to feel good about your MFA, I've got a great answer for you. No, I'm joking. No. <laughs> but I am curious. I, people, I mean, a young man came up to me yesterday in the book fair and wanted to know how he was about ready to graduate with a bachelor's degree in literature or something, and he wanted to know how he could get involved in, he wasn't sure, writing, reading, books, you know, he just knew he loved words, and I didn't know if, you know, should I say go get an MFA? What would you guys tell him? I think they're awesome. I do. I think they're awesome. I mean, I know, I get the criticism, I get the, the reasons that, you know, you might fear them, you might loathe them. But look, they're awesome that you, you're given time and money to write. Who, who does that? Where, I mean, where, you know, when did that happen? You're given the opportunity to have a tutor who really gives you a tutelage over the course of a couple of years. Now, I will tell you, I, I will say again what I've said many times when asked this question. It only takes about 10 or 20 weeks to learn what they have to teach you. <laughs> you know, if you're still struggling after a couple yeah. of years to figure out what old boy was trying to say, you're doing something wrong and maybe it's time to go yeah. into dental practice. <laughs> <laughs> but those 10 to 20 weeks are outstanding. That's an outstanding, finite amount of time where, frankly, I mean, if I'm speaking personally, my mind was blown. I'd walk out of, out of workshop and I'd have to turn to my good buddy and say, what the hell just happened back there? Because we talked about things. I mean, I thought I was coming here just for the time of the lane. Right. I'm getting, my ass is getting schooled. And I learned things. And I thought that was, I still think that is a fantastic thing to have, have done. And so I, I'm a big advocate for them. We could create the 20-week MFA program. Yeah, the 20-week. Like the well, Atkins the diet, but like yeah, the right, the Atkins, <laughs> the Atkins diet, the Denal and, 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 and Josh <laughs> method. It does only, I mean, it's a finite number of yeah. things that people, it's a craft issue. And then from that point forward, it's all up to you. Yeah. It's all up to you. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm grateful for my, I teach in an MFA program. And I, I, you know, I will say now, seeing it more from the other side, that one thing that I think people like, part of the resentment towards MFAs from people on the outside is the idea that sort of like MFAs are pushing things towards a more homogenous idea of what a narrative is supposed to look like, which, which might be kind of true, but I don't think it's because of the faculty necessarily. I think sometimes people come to an MFA hoping that somehow faculty are going to give them solutions yeah. to problems of narrative. And if I had this solution, that would be so boring. Right? Yeah. That would be the most boring thing I could possibly do for somebody's writing is tell you how to fix it because that kills the opportunity for you to create something new. Right? Like the stories that you're writing, what makes them interesting are, are the ways in which you take people and you get them to do things that I could not have done and that no one else except you could have done. So if writing is an art, and I do think it, it is an art, the craft is important, but the craft is only like the base tool that lets you create something new. It's not to tell you how to be, how to fix a story. Fixing a story is your job. It's your, it's your art, right? I think, I think the artist gets lost sometimes. 
this criticism of homogeneity is important, and it's important to sort of figure out what's behind yeah. it. And I think one of the things that goes on is when you give your work to other people in the room, and there's 11 other people and a teacher, suddenly you become palpably aware that you are trying to please people. Mm. And the problem then is you go away and you try to do this thing that, that you've charged yourself with doing. And you, you confuse what you should be doing, which is to answer to yourself yeah. with answering to strangers. And that is very dangerous. And I think that's why I would call the third year after the MFA the, the, the cooling off period, where you forget, you must forget about everyone in the room, everyone you've ever known, and go back to the solitary task of doing things that may offend that may surprise, yeah. that may, may be odd, that may not fit in with anything else, that you, you must run the risk of being disliked. Yeah. And that is an extremely hard thing for a lot of people to do, especially when they're like 24. Mm -hmm. Well, slightly related question, and don't worry about offending me, book review editor. Do you read your reviews, and do you, do you pay attention to them? Do they matter? I don't read any reviews. Any reviews? I don't read any reviews. Damn, really? Yeah. I don't read any reviews because I have, <coughs> I have control over one thing, <laughs> that is equanimity. And when I read my reviews, my equanimity goes away. And I've already written the book. I can't convince you to like it. So mm -hmm. if you pan me, all I've done is given you like two hours of my time because I'm angry at you for two yeah. hours. That just seems stupid. So I just did a cost-benefit <laughs> analysis, and I was like, Oh, if I stop reading these reviews, I'll never waste any more time on reviews. Yeah, that's something, I'll do that. Um, and I haven't read them since. I aspire to that, but like I want to make, I have like a, the desire of making an enemy list. So I read my reviews so I, I can construct <laughs> my wise. list of people to take down someday in my future. In my, in my future role as like master of the universe where I'm like, you are dismissed. <laughs> you... You go into that corner and you stay there until I let you come out. Until you write a good review. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Is, is like you, I, I feel like I, I read them to be punished because I'm not looking. A good review never makes me feel that anything. No, it just gets you back to zero. Yes, a bad review, see, like, it just, like, it doesn't, no, it does. It hurts sometimes. Yeah. Um, but two, it just frustrates. And, 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 and I, partly because I know I'm the one who subjected myself to that. Because, you're right, the book is done. It's out. It's entirely out of your hands. I wouldn't have let it out of my hands if I didn't think that I had put all my heart and energy into it and that there wasn't a single word or sentence or period that I, would have, yeah. Yeah. That I could have changed in any meaningful way. So if at that point I know that there's nothing else I could do to it, either I should have retracted it, but then to let yourself be subjected to like, you know, the sort of critique of others, yeah, that's a, it's a damning thing. But then people keep calling or telling you and then they... They text you. They're like, "Oh, dude, don't do that." And right. you're like, "Ah." So yeah, I just I have no restraint. I'm just I'm a weak person. But you're a beautiful man. Thank you. That's the only thing I've got going for me today. <laughs> I think we only have time for one more question. I wanted to ask you both quickly about just physically how you write. I think I read that you write on big oversized sheets of paper, but mm -hmm. I also read that you wrote an entire chapter on your phone. So that seemed contradictory. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. I got sick of the paper, and I moved to the phone. And then I got sick of the phone and moved back to the paper. You can actually write on your phone? I write a lot on my phone, yeah. I write a lot on my phone. Two thumbs? One I mean, thumb? two thumbs, yeah, two thumbs. I mean, I have like a, a book, a copy of the Bruce Chatwin book, Songline, Songlines, the Songlines, that I carved out with an X-Acto knife that would fit the phone. 
so that when my it just got too carpal tunnel-y, I fit into the phone and clicked it into place and then wrote with that because then it, it made it far more flexible. Uh-huh. It's like this little Etsy thing, you know, that you can like actually use with your phone. <clears throat> so that became that just made it easier. But I also found myself like hanging out at the post office or the whatever, being like, I'd like to write right now, but I'm at the post office. So I took out my phone, and that's when. Mm-hmm. It, so now I, because I taught myself to write really fast on the phone, I can write anywhere. Like wow. I don't have to like. Is that your preferred way of writing, is writing on your phone? It's weird because I know when I need to be on my phone and I know when I need to be on the page. It's, oh. I don't know, I can't figure it out what exactly the categories are, but I'll go right to the phone when I have a particular idea and I'll write on the phone, and then when I don't have a particular idea, or when I have a different kind of particular idea, I go to the page. And then you gather it all together from your phone? And you I email it to, to myself what's on the phone, oh. and then I uh, type it up when it's on the page and then merge them I'll together. It's Pulitzer Prize after Pulitzer, Pulitzer Prize. Prize. <laughs> That's the secret. And what about you? I, I just, I use a computer. There's nothing. <laughs> I like that, that crazy device. But like you, though, like I have learned, you know, it used to be sort of kind of precious about the way you would sort of write, where it's like, I had to make a coffee, no one could talk to me. Not that anyone wanted to talk to me, but in my imaginary world, somebody was trying to talk to me. No one could until I sat down to write. And now that this totally doesn't work. So when I'm, when I'm working well, when I'm actually really thinking hard about it, then I'm, one, I'm always writing in my head anyway. Um, I don't really take notes that much these days, but, but I'm not precious about what the time I have to write. Like, I wake up sometimes early, and if I do, I have my laptop next to me, and I sit down, and I just start writing. And then I put it away, and I take care of my, my life, kids, and then I start writing again. For my first book, I did something crazy where I listened to one song on repeat for three and a half years. So I listened to it 1,700 times. What song? I'm not going to tell anyone. <laughs> I've said it before, but I think those days of confessions are over. <laughs> it was the Katy Perry song. <laughs> no, no, I wish it was the Katy Perry song, because then I would have written a much more upbeat book, and it would have been like explosions and like firework. And instead, if you, yeah, you can tell that I would listen to like a not happy song. Yeah, well, I think we are out of time, but, but you will both be signing books. Thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.